for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Interviews, news, and analysis of the day's global events. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to your Global News Hour. Compass is dedicated to pursuing the news of the day from multiple sources around the world. Furthermore, whilst we follow the mainstream and follow the facts, this also means a healthy dose of news not shown in the mainstream, making this bulletin your go-to for the daily reality and the latest important information. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends. And on today's show, the cult of climate change sees educated women choosing not to have children because they might pollute. Dutch MP Thierry Bordet has been glassed in a bar whilst campaigning for Wednesday's Dutch elections. A babysitter has been sentenced to 700 years in prison for crimes against children. And the latest COVID death data out of the UK tells a familiar inconvenient truth. That is, the more jabs you take, the worse the outcome. But first today, the latest news out of Gaza. Negotiations to secure the release of captives held in Gaza are advancing, the White House says, but nothing has been finalised. US President Biden indicated Monday that a deal to release captives held by Hamas in Gaza was near, raising hopes for a Qatari-brokered agreement in exchange for a pause in the Israeli bombardment of the besieged Palestinian territory. UN Chief Antonio Guterres says the number of civilians killed in Israel's war on Gaza has been unparalleled and unprecedented since he took office back in 2017. An Israeli tank surrounded Indonesian hospital in Gaza, where at least 12 people were killed following direct Israeli strikes since the morning. Gaza Health Ministry spokesperson Ashraf al-Kudra has said that the Israeli attack on the Indonesian hospital is reminiscent of the attack on the al-Shifa hospital. Al-Kudra also told the AFP news agency that 200 patients were evacuated from the Indonesian hospital with the help of the Red Cross just hours after it was hit by a deadly Israeli strike. MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, says several of its staff and their family members are trapped in the al-Shifa hospital area, unable to evacuate due to the very dangerous situation around the compound. Gaza's health ministry directed to Smith Israel's claim that he'd had found a Hamas tunnel at the Al-Shifa hospital, describing it as a pure lie. In an open letter published in the New York Review of Books, 95 scholars expressed their dismay and disappointment at political leaders and notable public figures invoking Holocaust memory to explain the current crisis in Gaza and Israel. They pointed to recent comments from Israeli leaders, including Prime Minister Netanyahu, who compared Hamas to Nazis, as well as US President Biden, who said the Palestinian group had engaged in barbarism that is as consequential as the Holocaust. It is understandable why many in the Jewish community recall the Holocaust and earlier programs when trying to comprehend what happened on October 7, said the open letters of signatories, which included professors in Canada, Germany, Israel, the US and the UK. However, appealing to the memory of the Holocaust obscures our understanding of the anti-Semitism Jews face today and dangerously misrepresents the causes of violence in Israel-Palestine, they said, adding that the Israeli occupation and blockade of Gaza are among those root causes. Israeli leaders are others are using the Holocaust, framing to portray Israel's collective punishment of Gaza as a battle for civilization in the face of barbarism, thereby promoting racist narratives about Palestinians. The scholars wrote, there is no military solution in Israel-Palestine and deploying a Holocaust narrative in which an evil must be vanquished by force will only perpetuate an oppressive state of affairs that has already lasted for too long. 
a letter write, and Ghassan Abu Sitar, a doctor who worked at both Gaza's Al-Shifa and Al-Ali Arab hospitals, says Israel's destruction of Gaza's health sector is part of a military strategy that aims to wipe out Palestinians. What has been different in this war than all the other wars I've been at, not just in Gaza, but all around the region in Yemen, Iraq and Syria, is that the destruction of the healthcare system has been the main thrust of the Israeli military strategy. He said... He said that 800,000 people now do not have access to healthcare, including wounded Palestinians who are the only ones being bandaged up the best that they could be due to a lack of supplies. We had over 500 wounded in the grounds at the Al-Ali Arab Hospital when we ran out of medication. I honestly and truly believe that this is part of the military strategy. Those patients are going to die. Anybody who was lucky enough to survive the initial assault in the Israeli strategy was to destroy the healthcare system so that they did not survive their wounds. It is obvious that this is a genocidal war. And the Iran-backed Houthis say the move was a response by Israel's attack on Gaza to hijack the ship. The partly owned Israeli cargo vessel was hijacked by the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea. Israel described the incident as an Iranian act of terrorism. Tehran has rejected the allegation. So what impact could this have? What are the possible military and economic implications? We join this report from Al Jazeera. This is one of the last known locations of the galaxy leader as it made its way through the Red Sea. Yemen's Houthi rebels say they've seized the cargo vessel and it's now at a Yemeni port. They've stated that all Israeli-linked vessels are at risk. The Yemeni armed forces reiterate their warning to all ships affiliated with the Israeli enemy or those dealing with it that they will become legitimate targets for the armed forces. Hamas has thanked the Houthis for the hijacking and for support in its fight against Israel. This is a welcome step from the Yemeni forces, and I believe that the size of the Zionist crime committed in Gaza makes every loyalist eager to defend and support the Palestinian people with all he can. For Israel, this incident is part of a Iranian-orchestrated continuum of conflict taking in Hamas in the occupied Palestinian territories, Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthis in Yemen, all groups that Israel sees as proxies to a greater or lesser extent of Tehran. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office says this is another act of Iranian terrorism, which expresses a leap forward in Iran's aggression against the citizens of the free world and creates international implications regarding the security of global shipping lanes. Iran has denied it had anything to do with the hijacking, but Israeli security watchers are worried about its implications for international shipping. This is uh, intended to open a new front in addition to Lebanon in order to divert attention from uh, Gaza or divert resources But um, it is not in the Houthis' interest. Also, the American Fifth Fleet is operating there. They have a base in uh, Somali too. Um, So uh, it's in everyone's uh, interest to calm down in the Red Sea. The reverberations from Hamas's attacks of October the 7th and Israel's war on Gaza are being felt throughout the region. Rory Challens, Al Jazeera, Occupied East Jerusalem. Skirmishes between the Israel Defence Forces and Hezbollah continued Monday amid Israel's war against Hamas in the Strip, with the Iran-backed terror group firing rockets and launching drones at northern Israel 
causing heavy damage to an army base in one of the attacks. Hezbollah had fired more than a 1,000 rockets, mortars, missiles and drones at Israel since October 8, the day after the Gaza war erupted, according to Defence Minister Yoav Gallant. Monday skirmishes began unusually with the IDF striking first. The military said it had shelled southern Lebanon with artillery, apparently to prevent terror cells from approaching the area to carry out attacks. A short while later, a number of rockets and mortars were fired from Lebanon at the northern communities of Arab al-Amarash and Baram, as well as the Baranat army base. The conflict along the Lebanon-Israel border has been increasing in intensity. Yes, it is still largely confined to the border area, a few kilometers on each side of the border, but there has been an intensification in the attacks. The Lebanese armed group Hezbollah, for example, in recent days has been mounting, on average, at least 10 um, operations against Israeli military positions along the border. On Monday, it targeted an Israeli uh, position, uh, heavily targeted that Israeli position in the central sector. And uh, what is rare is that uh, footage, video of the aftermath of that strike has emerged. It is rare for the Israeli military to allow such images to be broadcast of a position uh, largely destroyed, that level of destruction, which some may uh, interpret as a possible warning that Israel could intensify its uh, retaliation against uh, against Hezbollah. It has been carrying out airstrikes, uh, artillery shelling, targeting what it says are sources of fire in Hezbollah positions along the border, but there have been occasional hits deeper inside Lebanon. So Hezbollah targeting this Israeli position with four missiles, what is known as the Burkan missile, that's what Hezbollah calls it. Each one could weigh up to, uh, up to half a ton. So two tons of explosives targeting an Israeli position. Um, people are concerned that uh, this conflict, which has been, you know, confined to the border region, could escalate and could spread. Sana Khudr al-Jazeera, southern Lebanon. A court in Italy has convicted more than 230 defendants at the end of one of the country's largest ever mafia trials, which targeted the Nerdrangheta crime group in its heartland in the southern region of Calabria. More than 330 suspected mobsters and their alleged associates, including white-collar professionals, had been facing an array of charges, such as extortion, drug trafficking and theft, in a trial that lasted almost three years. It took judges just one hour and 40 minutes to read their verdict on Monday, Italy's Anson News Agency reported. The heaviest penalties were handed to Saverio Arazionali and Domenico Bonavata, two local Calabrian mafia leaders, both given 30-year prison sentences. Today's ruling means a whole province of Calabria has been liberated from the top brass of the criminal group. Nicola Grateri, one of Italy's best-known magistrates and a former lead prosecutor in the case, told Reuters. Among those convicted were Giancarlo Pitelli, a lawyer and former politician with the Forza Italia party, a member of the National Ruling Coalition, who was sentenced to 11 years in prison for mafia collusion and passing on information. Grateri, who changed jobs just two months ago to become chief prosecutor in Naples, said that confirming the connection between the 
Naren Gita and a network of professionals was a pivotal aspect of the verdict. Giorgio Nacelli, a former local police chief, was sentenced to two years and six months. However, the prosecution did not secure as heavy sentences as it was seeking in a number of cases, and around 100 of those on trial were cleared. Monday's first instance ruling can be appealed by both the defence and the prosecution. The Narangrita is considered by prosecutors to be Italy's most powerful mafia group, easily eclipsing the more famous Cosa Nostra gang in Sicily, with its influence extending across Europe and beyond. And in a recent interview, the Dutch central bank said it has equalised its gold reserves relative to GDP to other countries in the Eurozone and outside of Europe. This has been a political decision. If there is a financial crisis, the gold price will skyrocket and official gold reserves can be used to underpin a new gold standard, according to DNB. Jan Neuenhaus argues these statements confirm that central banks are preparing for a new international gold standard. By saying gold will be the safe haven by of choice during a financial collapse, DNB confesses its own currency, the euro, does not weather all storms. Indirectly, DNB encourages people to own gold to be protected from financial shocks, making the transition toward a global-based monetary system more likely. Central banks of medium and large economies in the eurozone have balanced their official gold reserves proportionally to GDP to prepare for a gold standard. Seemingly, there are guidelines in the eurozone for national central banks to hold an appropriate amount of gold relative to GDP. China announced that it was working to build up its gold reserves in order to bring it more in line with the size of Chinese GDP. Evenly spread gold reserves internationally are a prerequisite for a smooth transition to a gold standard. If some countries own too much and others too little, as was the case in the 1970s, a newly implemented gold standard would prove to be the deflationary one because the other ones with too little gold would have to buy in, pushing up the real price of gold. As long as official gold reserves are evenly spread, the nominal gold price can be increased to what is suited for all countries before introducing another, a new system. And another sign of Europe having prepared for a new gold arrangement are the repatriations by several countries. The Eurozone, Germany, Netherlands, France, Austria repatriated and redistributed bullion for security reasons while keeping a substantial share of their assets in liquid markets such as London. Additionally, Germany, France, Sweden have all upgraded gold bars that didn't adhere to current wholesale industry standards, so now all their metal can be traded instantly. Last but not least, European Central Bank's communication about gold has become unequivocally clear and candid, stating gold is the bedrock of stability for the international monetary system. Germany, gold is an excellent hedge against diversity, says Italy, and gold is considered to be the ultimate store of value, says France, and gold may play a stabilising role in the times of structural change in the international financial system or deep geopolitical crises, says Hungary. Remarkable statements from entities tasked with guaranteeing financial stability. And coming up after the break, Dutch MP Thierry Bourdais, who has appeared on TNT many times, has been glassed, assaulted in a Dutch bar at a campaign event. This is Compass on TNT Radio.
You should hear what Charlie Robinson is talking about. I think once we saw the supply chain issues uh, that happened during the COVID debacle, you go, well, that seems bad for the, you know, when you're fighting somebody for toilet paper, but it could be worse, right? It could be the last can of food. So people are starting to reevaluate and reassess their situations and their relationship with supply chains and the like. And I think what that does is it leads you to a place of saying, how can I make myself less dependent on the system? It's kind of hard to know where to start, right? Where would you suggest we even begin with this process? Yeah, it's funny you said that because someone said to me recently and it made me laugh that this is going to be the kind of collapse where the Burger King's still open. I, I think that's what's probably lulling people into a false sense of security in that everything when we go to the city kind of appears normal unless you're in one of those really crazy drug adult cities. But for most people, I would say, Charlie, it feels normal, but it ain't normal. <laughs> the world yeah. is not normal. It's completely gone off kilter. Sure. Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk Jason Oborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. An unexpected surge in public support for the Dutch right wing uh, could pave the way for veteran anti-Islam politician Geert Wilders to play a pivotal role in the formation of the next government after parliamentary elections on Wednesday in the Netherlands. A Maurice de Hond poll over the weekend found Wilders Freedom Party, the PVV, tied in first place with the Liberal VVD party of outgoing Prime Minister Mark Rutter, indicating that a right-wing coalition was the most likely outcome, according to analysts. The Labor-Green alliance of parties was trailing behind in third place, along with new social contract NSC, a recently formed centre-right party that is likely to be indispensable to any ruling coalition. Even if the Hond opinion poll proves to be an unreliable outlier with its projection that Wilder's party will win 26 seats in a 150-seat assembly, a right-wing government is unlikely to take office without the Freedom Party's backing. To build a majority right-wing coalition, the support of Wilders is required, said Sarah DeLong, Professor of Politics at the University of Amsterdam. Wilders may need to back the government from the outside, she added, as some parties, including NSC, have refused to go into a coalition with him. It would be the second time the Freedom Party has supported a government since 2010, when Wilders backed a Rutter minority cabinet for two years. All parties on the right share a desire to cut immigration, solve the housing crisis and stimulate the economy as people struggle with high inflation and slow growth. Wilders, who is 60, has long been a fixture of Dutch politics. With his swept back mane of blonde hair and phalanx of bodyguards, the government has provided after he received death threats in response to his campaign to ban the Koran. As a critic of Islam, he followed the, in the footsteps of Pim Fortune, a charismatic politician who was murdered in 2002 by a Dutch left-wing activist who said he wanted to show solidarity with Muslims in the Netherlands. Wilders was briefly challenged by younger far-right figures, notably Thierry Bourdain, whose Forum for Democracy topped the polls with 15% in 2019 in provincial elections. Despite a slump in the polls, Bourdain was assaulted in a pub at a campaign event on Monday evening. 
Thierry Baudet, the leader of Forum for Democracy in the Netherlands, was assaulted during a campaign event two days before the national election. In a statement, the party said he'd been struck in the back of the head with a beer bottle and struck on his temple. The motive was not known. Baudet was taken to hospital in Groningen for treatment for what his party said appeared to be minor injuries, but he was forced to cancel an appearance later on Monday. The assault drew condemnation as totally unacceptable from outgoing Prime Minister Mark Rutter, who is not a candidate in the November 22 election. Baudet's FVD party is known as Eurosceptic, Dutch nationalist and anti-immigration. It is forecast to win four or five seats in the upcoming 150-member Dutch Parliament election. The Office for National Statistics recently published an update on deaths by vaccination status in England, and it has shockingly revealed that the vaccinated population accounted for 95% of COVID-19 deaths in the 12 months between the 1st of June 2022 and the 31st of May 2023, and 94% of those deaths were among either the triple or quadruple, quadruple vaccinated population. The data set includes deaths by vaccination status between the 1st of April 2021 and the 31st of May 2023. The unvaccinated accounted for the least amount of COVID-19 deaths in every single month up to May 2023, barely even getting into triple figures in most months, whereas the vaccinated population accounted for the majority of COVID-19 deaths every single month, hitting four figures in all but two months throughout that year. But what's curious about the figures is that it's not the one-dose or double-vaccinated population who account for the majority of COVID-19 deaths throughout the 12 months. Instead, it's the triple and quadruple vaccinated population that accounted for the majority of COVID-19 deaths, with the most deaths occurring among the quadruple vaccinated from August 22 onwards. The following chart shows the total number of COVID-19 deaths by vaccinated status throughout the entire year and reveals the true extent of the shocking statistics. The unvaccinated population barely broke into four figures throughout the entire year, hitting a total of 1,161 COVID-19 deaths, whereas the vaccinated population hit five figures with 20,336 COVID-19 deaths. 19,143 of which were among the triple and quadruple vaccinated. This means, as is shown in the following chart, that the vaccinated population in England accounted for 95% of COVID-19 deaths between the 1st of June 2022 and the 31st of May 2023, whereas the unvaccinated population accounted for just 5%. The triple and quadruple vaccinated shockingly accounted for 94% of all deaths among the vaccinated population and is shown in the following chart. 89% of all COVID-19 deaths with the one dose and two dose vaccinated accounting for just 6% of COVID-19 deaths. This is, however, still higher than the 5% of COVID-19 deaths among the unvaccinated population. And according to the UK's Office of National Statistics, that by the end of August 2022, of those aged 12 and over, 93.6% had taken the first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, 88.2% went on to receive a second dose, and 70.2% had taken three or more doses, despite the fact that among the vaccinated, 94% of those had taken three or four had passed away. Truly shocking numbers. How can taking more of a medicine make it worse unless there's something wrong with the medicine? 
At what point do the authorities realise the errors of their ways? And the Ukrainian government on Monday replaced the head of the State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection of Ukraine, that's the triple CIP, after anti-corruption prosecutors implicated him in an embezzlement scheme. Triple S CIP head Yuri Shigol and his deputy Victor Jora have been dismissed and Dmitry Makovsky appointed as acting director. Government spokesman Taras Melinchuk has announced the agency's job is to secure government communications and defend the country's infrastructure from cyber attacks. While Melnichuk did not specify the reasons for the dismissal, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, or NABU, issued a statement on an hour later claiming that Shigol and Jora had been implicated in a plot to embezzle $62 million, uh, that is about $1.72 million between 2020 and 2022. According to NABU, six other officials participated in the procurement of software for a secure government database from two companies in a closed bidding process. The companies which were allegedly under the control of the conspirators sold the software at an inflated cost, billing the government 285 million hervnia while paying 223 million to a foreign vendor. Nabu alleges that the six men transferred the 62 million difference to an offshore account for the purpose of legalization and distribution among members of the organized criminal group. And Western currencies have almost completely phased out in Russia-China trade as nearly all payments between the countries are now carried out in rubles and yuan. Russian First Deputy Prime Minister Andrei Belyasov announced on Monday, since the introduction of Western sanctions on Moscow, Russia and China have accelerated the use of their own currencies in trade. According to Belyasov, 95% of all transactions between the two countries are now carried out in the country's national currencies. And given the rapid expansion of multi-trade and cooperation, this percentage is likely to grow. Speaking at a meeting of Russia-China Intergovernmental Commission in Beijing, the Deputy Prime Minister said bilateral trade between the two countries will exceed the target of 200 billion US dollars this year and may reach 300 billion by 2030. He noted that China has long been among Russia's major trade partners and that the scope of investment opportunities for the two countries is expanding. And coming up after the news headlines, African nations gather in Germany for a G20 compact, demanding stronger and more inclusive partnerships. This is Compass on TNT Radio. Time to read some news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Beijing has cautioned Canberra against making reckless accusations against China after Australia accused a Chinese warship of injuring one of its Navy divers off the coast of Japan. Celebrations are continuing in Argentina, where libertarian economist Javier Millet was elected president on Sunday. And France claims to have conducted its first successful test firing of a long-range ballistic missile designed to be launched from nuclear submarines. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. Welcome back. The G20's Compact with Africa initiative is being hosted by Germany with the aim of supporting African countries in their economic development. Leaders from more than a dozen African countries are taking part in the two-day conference, which began in Germany. The member countries of the G20 Compact are Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Senegal, Guinea, Ivory Coast, Ghana, Togo, Benin, Burkina Faso, Rwanda, 
Democratic Republic of Congo and Ethiopia. The head of the African Union has told a conference bringing together G20 and African nations that shortcomings in the financial system hinder the mobilisation of capital for African economies. Speaking in Berlin, Azali Asumani asked the AU's G20 partners to support Africa's call for reform of the international financial architecture and for more fair and more inclusive global economic governance. With more, we join this report from African News. The head of the African Union, AU, Azali Asumani, has called on the G20 Compact with Africa initiative to be extended to all African countries for a stronger and more inclusive partnership. The call comes as leaders from more than a dozen African countries on Monday began the two-day conference in Germany. The potential of the Compact with Africa initiative can only be fully realized if a number of challenges are met. Indeed, even if investment flows from G20 countries to adhering African countries exceed pre-pandemic levels, as in 2019, they still fall far short of the record amount of almost $53 billion reached in the fiscal year 2017 and 2018. Yet, the country's internal investment needs still remain colossal. The AU chair also told the conference that shortcomings in the financial system ended the mobilization of capital for African economies. Nearly two-thirds of German companies want to expand their business in Africa, according to a study. It has to be said that the current shortcomings of the financial system are a major obstacle to mobilizing international private capital and financing the development of our African economies. I would therefore ask our G20 partners to support Africa's call for reform of the international financial architecture and for more fair and more inclusive global economic governance. The G20's Compact with Africa initiative is being hosted by Germany with the aim of supporting African countries in their economic development. Ghana has hosted the inaugural three-day African Cinema Summit in Accra, delved into the intricacies, challenges and opportunities within the African cinematic space. In a resounding call to harness Africa's rich cultural tapestry, filmmakers across the continent are being urged to pool their resources and collaborate effectively to propel growth. Africa, with its rich cultural, historical and social diversity, has a film legacy that dates back to the emigration era. However, the industry has struggled to reflect an accurate portrayal of its cultures, often being relegated to mere backdrops for Western narratives, a challenge which underscores the need for change. It's time for Africa to assert its voice on the global cinema stage, Edward Mukala, the head of UNESCO ACRA office, said, let us save this comment to foster collaboration, share resources and unite in our commitment to create a vibrant African film industry. Africa's film and audiovisual businesses generate about $5 billion annually, but could potentially reach $20 billion and create 20 million jobs according to the UN cultural agency UNESCO, citing a Pan-African Filmmakers Federation. And Ghanaian President Akufo Addo recognises the great influence of an empowered film industry as a catalyst for sustainable development across African nations. I believe it's not beyond us collectively in Africa to produce such statistics, and the availability of the right skills set is critical to this end, the President said. 
Ghana has been promoting itself as a movie location with its Shoot in Ghana campaign with British actor Idris Elba recently visiting the country where he said he would shoot some of his next film, local media reported. With more, we join this report from Ghana. Africa, with its rich cultural, historical and social diversity, has a film legacy that dates back to the emigration era. It's time for Africa to assert its voice on the global cinema stage. Let us seize this moment to foster collaboration, share resources and unite in our commitment to create a vibrant African film industry. We're also telling local filmmakers that, look, your content cannot survive only in Ghana. First of all, you need to ensure that your film makes it through festivals, through cinemas, but also you need to be able to take your film outside of Ghana. And for your film to do well means that you need to be able to tell a story that resonates. And, and a good story is a good story. However, the industry has struggled to reflect an accurate portrayal of its cultures, often being relegated to mere backdrops for Western narratives. It's one continent. We have over 50 countries. And so if we are able to connect and have a big African film industry, I mean, even Hollywood cannot... President Akufuadu recognizes the great influence of an empowered film industry as a catalyst for sustainable development across African nations. I believe it is not beyond us collectively in Africa to produce our statistics and the availability of the right skill set is critical to this end. And the glow in your heart from a warm... As investment and collaborations increase, the African film industry stands poised to capture the essence of its diverse stories drive economic progress and pave the way for a sustainable future. Male Nanny, who advertised himself as a manny and worked for families across Southern California before being convicted of sexually assaulting 16 young boys in his care, has been handed a prison sentence of more than 700 years. Matthew Antonio Zakriski, who was also convicted of showing child sexual abuse material to a boy, received his punishment at a sentencing hearing on Friday in California, prosecutors said in a statement. The man was arrested in May 2019 after a couple told Laguna Beach police he touched their son inappropriately. More alleged victims were identified, and Zakriski was ultimately charged with 34 felonies including lewd and lavicious acts with a minor. Victims range from just aged of 2 to 12 years old, investigators said. The jury convicted him on all counts, according to the local district attorney. Zakruski of Costa Mesa claimed that he was more than a manny who watched over children. He also advertised that he would provide a fun buddy experience for those put in his care. With more, here is part of ABC News's report. His sentencing of more than 700 years behind bars without probation, Matthew Zikchevsky showed no emotion in Orange County Superior Court Friday. The 34-year-old Costa Mesa man was convicted for sexually abusing 16 boys and showing a 17th child pornography from 2014 to 2019. He filmed his crimes while serving as a male nanny for families across California. The children ranged in age from 2 to 12. In court, Zegchevsky looked intently at the parents of the children he abused as they read their impact statements. Mothers broke down in tears, telling Zegchevsky he stole their child's souls, leaving their little ones and families with years of therapy as they work to move on. 
Their hope for him that, quote, his time in prison is the stuff of nightmares. Zekchevsky addressed the families, never apologizing, instead telling them he wants their sons to break through the clouds and shine bright. The judge addressed Zekchevsky, reminding him of what the videos he recorded show. His repeated abuse of trust, saying, quote, We watched you turn molestation into a game at reading time, bath time, a swim opportunity, and of course, bedtime. As the bailiffs took Zekchevsky away, clapping filled the room from families satisfied with the judge's sentencing. The judge ordered Zegchevsky to have no contact with any of his victims, whether in person, electronically, or in writing. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Once again, I'm going to quote from my buddy Mark Marano's Climate Depot. This is just unbelievable what I see going on at this summit between Biden and the Chinese government. As a matter of fact, the most alarming thing is that John Kerry was anywhere around that place. These two guys and their administrations have been bullying the United States of America over a problem that even if it existed, we have very little to do with it. Australia, UK, you have nothing to do with it. Canada, you have nothing to do with it. Seriously, if you look at the amount of CO2 you put in the air compared to total CO2, it truncates to zero. Now, who is the biggest polluter, if you want to call CO2 pollutant? It's China. So expert raise alarms after Biden strikes climate agreement with China to shut down fossil fuels. What, what kind of insanity is this? China thumbs their nose and laughs at the rest of the world. And guess what? It's our fault they do it. You know why? They know darn well that this is not a big disaster. They know darn well they have to push forward their population. I mean, I realize China's in bad shape as far as freedoms go, but they are trying to work in their own whatever manner to try to create more freedoms and more prosperity for China. So of course they're going to sit there and try to stop the United States. And these guys just walk right into it. It's disgusting. Americans are letting a guy and his buddy John Kerry bully them over a situation they have precious little to do with. Let me read you the facts. CO2 is 0.042% of the atmosphere. Man is responsible for 3 to 5% of that. The United States is responsible for 10% of that total. Australia, Canada, the UK, about 1%. Essentially, it's nothing. Much ado about nothing. They weaponize weather in a phony climate war. It's unbelievable. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. I need to go get my rabies shots. People might tell you that Lyme doesn't kill people, but we are losing people. People disappear from their lives. One of the scariest things that I had to deal with was uh, memory loss. Not just like I don't remember what I did last week, but like I forgot all the words to my own songs. I remember going to my primary care physician and he was like, you are 100% healthy, there's nothing wrong with you. And my response was, that's impossible, I'm dying. I wasn't working. So I had all of these hospital bills. We had to move out of our home and move into my parents' basement. I just wish I could have truly been present in those big moments, you know, when she took her first steps or, you know, her first day of preschool. Lyme is such a thief and it goes 
undetected because no one is looking for it. For more information and prevention tips, go to projectlime.org. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. TNT. Welcome back. For millennia, monarchs ruled by some form of divine right. If not asserting godlike powers, they claim to be acting as God's emissaries here on earth. You can imagine the effect this had on devout peoples of any faith. How could the great unwashed masses dare question any royals' divinely inspired orders? This paradigm kept government authorities towering over those they rule, writes J.B. Shirk. The Enlightenment and the scientific revolution crashed through the walls of absolute monarchies, reoriented political systems on the foundations of natural law, religious toleration, constitutional government, and individual liberty. 20th century postmodernism later led to a rise in religious and agnosticism and a growing uncertainty about even the existence of God. First, philosophers stole monarchs' divine right to rule, then they convinced new generations to question God altogether. Unsurprisingly, both of these intellectual revolutions weakened the innate authority upon which governments relied. Stripped of any divide pretense for exerting power over their subjects, governments have been attempting to justify their existence ever since. From this perspective, it's easy to see why those with power today have gone all in on global warming fear-mongering. By replacing God with the apocalyptic threat of climate change, governments have effectively created a higher power that they exclusively control. Instead of beseeching citizens to follow God's will here on earth, governments beseech them to follow the science. The science for its part is treated as some kind of infallible religious scripture that can never be questioned. Doesn't matter that climate models have been wildly incorrect, that research has been fabricated, that sea levels are not rising, or that the proposed solutions for manipulating naturally dynamic climates will accomplish nothing. Governments have decreed the science is settled, and once the science has spoken, no lonely heretic may disagree. Geologist Ian Plymer is one who can rip the climate agenda apart with simple logic and observation, once considered the definition of science. We hear about climate scientists, whatever that is. Now, in geology, we have a 250-year track record of arguing about climate. Textbooks are full of it. We've been labouring about climate for a long while, and then there's this sudden new invention of climate science. And I had some of these when I was head of department at the University of Melbourne, and these are embittered, obscure, unemployable academics funded by your taxes, and those taxes are to fund these people's hobbies, and the end result of that is that they put good people out of work and they cost our nation trillions. So there's one group of people that use models, another group of people, I mean, this is, this is really sinful, we use evidence, and the two are not in accord. And if they're not in accord, you've got to throw out the models, which we've seen time and time again are incorrect. So we can look back in the past, and we can see that we've had six great ice ages during that ice age, we'll have the ice expand, that's a glaciation, or it will contract, that's an interglacial. We are currently in an interglacial of an ice age that started on a Thursday 34 million years ago. <laughs> and the ice has come and gone. In our last interglacial, sea level was about seven metres higher. Temperature was about five degrees warmer. So if someone says, oh, this is the hottest day on record, 
you have to ask, since when? <laughs> if it's the hottest day in the last 120,000 years, then that is a record. But um, since when? So if we go to the peak of our interglacial, which was about 4,000 years ago, it was about five degrees warmer. So it's cooler than the hottest temperature on record. If we go to the time of Jesus, when it was warm, it's about four degrees cooler than then. If we go to the Dark Ages, go to the Viking Age, we've actually warmed up since then. If we go to the medieval warming, we've cooled down since then. And if we go to the Little Ice Age, we've warmed up since then. So since when? And I know this is going to surprise you, but we've just come out of a Little Ice Age. What do you think temperature's going to do? Fall or rise? <laughs> it's been rising since the Maunder minimum more than 300 years ago. So it is no surprise that if you have cut off times for temperature or for sea level or for hurricanes or whatever, you can spin whatever yarn you want to spin. These six great ice ages started when we had more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than now. We have 0.04% of that gas in the atmosphere, and we hear words like emissions. Well, that means nothing to me, because the atmosphere has changed in its carbon dioxide content from over 20% to now, which is really low in geological time. If we halved it, all plant life would die, and animals would die. Meanwhile, Augusto Zimmerman, Professor and Head of Law at Sheridan Institute of Higher Education in Australia and former Law Reformer Commissioner in Western Australia, has written in an op-ed, Forging Procreation, Disrupting Fellow, sorry, Forgoing Procreation, Disrupting Fellow Human Lives and Wishing for Death on a Massive Scale, Environmentalism Shows Cult-Like Tendencies, Climate Change Religion. How long before human sacrifices? History teaches us that some ancient civilizations killed their children to change the weather. They used the practice child sacrifice to appease their gods in an attempt to court their good graces. Those primitive peoples believed that through human sacrifice, the forces of nature could be coerced in their favor. For example, one of the ways the Aztecs honored their gods was by killing people in a field with arrows so that their blood might fertilize the land. Modern environmentalist movement is often compared to a religion. It certainly thinks that humans can change the weather, and it includes a vision of sin and repentance, damnation and salvation. Above and beyond the presence of actual neo-pagans and Gaia worshippers in its ranks, the environmentalist movement itself is displaying characteristics of a nature-worshipping cult, and a remarkably anti-human one at that. Many of its supporters effectively believe that the world has a cancer, that that cancer is called the human race. Of course, a reasonable concern to avoid pollution and preserve our natural resources in a responsible manner is a commendable ethical position. We should always take care of the environment, be responsible for its protection, and at the same time help the poor. At the core of climate change extremists' beliefs are two main tenets, that humans can control the weather and that humans will bring about the end of the world if they disrespect nature. This sounds like religious scripture, and while environmentalists will readily provide scientific research to back up their statements, rarely will they tolerate counter-arguments, such as when someone points out that none of their apocalyptic predictions have come true so far. According to Australia's Senator James Patterson, the public shaming and bullying of any scientist who differs from climate change orthodoxy is eerily reminiscent of a latter-day Salem witch trial or Spanish Inquisition, with public floggings meted out metaphorically speaking, for their thought crimes. 
indeed dissenters, as they have also been labelled, suffer ritual humiliation at the hands of their colleagues and the media, with their every motivation questioned and even pilloried. When the temperature rises, we hear, wow, that's clear evidence of climate change. But when there's a rapid cooling, we hear, wow, that's more proof of climate change. According to Jonah Goldberg, the founding editor of National Review Online, the beauty about global warming is that it touches everything we do, what we eat, what we wear, where we go. Our carbon footprint is the measure of man. James Tankowicz from the Institute of Religion and Democracy in Washington, D.C., explains that there is a long history of environmentalist thinking that sees humans primarily as consumers and polluters. That thinking leads many to insist that abortion rights are integral to any environmental agenda. He says, foregoing children and even having an abortion is thereby promoted by the green elites in the so-called Western democracies, is environmentally friendly, while childless women are doing their bit to reduce the carbon footprint of civilization. Tragically, not only are the young generations being fooled into foregoing children due to the fear of endangering the planet, but they're also terminating their healthy pregnancies, with some going so far as to openly claim that it was done in the service of climate goals. A married woman once told a newspaper that not having a child is the most environmentally friendly thing that she could do. The same article reports another woman who terminated her pregnancy in the firm belief that having children is selfish. Every person who is born uses more food, more water, more land, more fossil fuels, more trees, and produces more rubbish, more pollution, more greenhouse gases, and adds to the problem of overpopulation. Of course, concerns about overpopulation aren't new. In 1968, ecologist Paul Ehrlich predicted worldwide famine due to overpopulation and advocated immediate action to limit population growth. Ehrlich's The Population Bomb was one of the most influential books of the last century. Sometime in the next 15 years, the end will come, he said in a prophetic tone more than 50 years ago. Needless to say, that prophecy never came true. Despite all the worry, access to food and resources increased as the global population rose. Obviously, this hasn't stopped some environmental activists from continuing to make similarly bizarre statements about humanity and the future of our planet. Prince Philip, the late Duke of Edinburgh, wrote in 1986, I must confess that I am tempted to ask for reincarnation as a particularly deadly virus, as a way to do something about human overpopulation. Meanwhile, speaking on Mark Stain's show is commentator Eva Vladin Grabroke, and about this alarming new trend in educating women who are choosing not to have children. Almost like a change in human rewiring, isn't it? I mean, something like 45% of uh, German female university graduates are childless. You know, in other words, half of educated women uh, don't want to have any kids. Yeah, and they don't want to have any kids, not because their instincts suddenly stopped working because they suddenly don't want to anymore, but because people uh, like, well, I mean, every single climate activist nowadays will tell you that having a child is a disservice to the world or is a disgrace even because, well, a baby, you know, has such a large carbon footprint uh, that you just should refrain altogether. And that's actually what prompted this this tweet that you just posted or showed in mm. screen. Uh, the rant that it prompted in me was because I read an article here about a 25-year-old woman who gave an interview to a Dutch newspaper in which she, she said that she had uh, gotten an abortion because, well, this was no world to bring a child into because of the dangers of climate change. And it turned out in this article that she wasn't alone in that, that mm. actually 
I think it was a fifth of, of, of all young people around my age are having serious doubts whether they should bring a child into the world because of climate change. And, you know, it was a real it was almost they were really propagating abortion as something that you should do in order to save the planet. And at the same time, these are the same people that are saying, oh, let's ha have open borders and bring half of Africa here. So yeah. that just really didn't sit well with me. And it made me incredibly upset. And why I even, I even called these people out and said, you're weak-minded morons if you think that your life is so hard or that the circumstances that we currently live in are too dangerous to bring a child into, especially when you compare that to, well, just, just about every single generation before us in history, mm. you know, uh, where a child mortality was sky high and, and you were dealing with a lot more than a, than a made-up crisis that only lives in your head. Zimmerman argues that we should be deeply suspicious of any argument that employs language that refers to humans as an invasive virus, a plague, or even a problem that needs to be resolved. This is an argument that betrays a desire to bring death at a large scale, to eliminate human beings in search of some utopian small number of sustainable survivors. Nevertheless, some environmentalists even lament that neither war nor famine are capable of reducing the population enough and prefer the arrival of a deadly virus to prey on the innocent. We've come to the point that even a new human life is seen as a threat to the environment, where some candidly contend that new babies represent an undesirable source of greenhouse emissions, consumers of natural resources. This is why these insidious access aspects of the environmentalist cult must be exposed and challenged, and perhaps why the Greenies missed their leader's sleight of hand that the cure is worse than the virus that they wished for. Meanwhile, last week on this show, I played a clip of journalist Alex Newman explaining that now new peer-reviewed climate science showing carbon dioxide was not the cause of global warming, citing two other causes. Here is Newman again explaining to Josh Phillips why it is that the climate scientists keep up the charade, showing us that academia itself is compromised by those who fund it. You know, what I've heard from a lot of people before was that nobody dares say it. Everybody understands it, nobody dares say it. What effect are we seeing now that some pretty credible people are stepping forward on this? Uh, that's exactly right. And and I reached out to a lot of scientists for my article in the Epic Times about this. And over and over again, I kept saying, you know, I'd love to comment, but I can't because my funding is going to be jeopardized. My grant's going to be jeopardized. You know, if I get associated with saying that these papers are important, uh, I'm going to be, um, you know, labeled and I won't be able to participate anymore in scientific debates. So there's still a, a very real sense that that's going on. But what, when you look at the, the scientists behind these papers, uh, for example, Dr. Willie Soon, uh, these are people who've now moved away from the major institutions. Uh, Dr. Willie Soon ended his, his time at Harvard-Smithsonian last year, and they're now working independently. So they have a, an organization called CERIS. That's the real issue, right? Uh, any scientist who comes out and says, hey, the UN is not telling the truth, the federal government is not telling the truth, they're, they're, their grants are going to dry up. Uh, if they're not tenured, they're going to be at risk of losing their job. But when you take a bunch of scientists who are completely independent, who don't need federal grants, who don't need to participate with the UN, they have a lot more freedom. And I think that's what's going on here. Sam Altman, the former CEO of AI powerhouse OpenAI, is joining Microsoft to lead a new advanced AI research team. The tech giant's CEO, Satya Nadella, confirmed on X. And Greg Brockman, OpenAI's former president, who quit after Altman was fired on Friday, is also joining Microsoft to work in the new group. Nadella said Microsoft was extremely excited to announce the recruitment of both Altman and Brockman, together with colleagues who also jumped ship at OpenAI following the CEO's chaotic dismissal. OpenAI was believed to be looking to rehire Altman, 
after what was widely reported as a messy ouster on Friday, given he was spotted at the company's headquarters on Sunday. However, Microsoft, the chat GPT developer's main financial backer, apparently won out instead. While the circumstances of Altman's firing from OpenAI remain unclear, the company's board claimed in its statement on Friday the tech executive had not been consistently candid in his discussions with them, hampering the board's ability to do its work. Insiders told CNN there was a clash of attitudes between Altman, who wanted to speed up AI product development, and the board, which wanted to prioritise caution, with Altman's own cautious public rhetoric not matching his actions behind the scenes. Microsoft owns a $13 billion share in OpenAI and uses the company's technology to power its Bing chatbot. Well, that concludes today's bulletin. Coming up after the break is Chris Smith. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on TNT Radio.